HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's episode of the Feed Feed podcast is brought to you with Food is Great. Together, we invite you to explore the UK's unique and exceptional food and beverage culture. Discover more at ff.recipes slash foodisgreat. This week on Meet and 3, we have stories about food in large quantities. From bulk buying groups and reasons for stocking up, to creative solutions for handling excess waste. We have someone picking up our corks from the wine bottles and they repurpose them to make buoys for boats and, and, and like shoes and all these different things. Yeah, because of the COVID, uh, everybody like uh, isolated at home. But uh, to see the people face to face is still exciting. So we kind of treat like a chance to say hello to the people and to the friend. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Julie Resnick, co-founder of The Actual Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. I will be your host for season three of the Feed Feed podcast, a special series called What's on Your Table. Each episode, I will be looking at a specific country, region, or people, and talking to a few members of the Feed Feed community about the food, recipes, ingredients, and flavors that make up the dishes that are always on their tables. Today, we're talking about the bounty of British food and drink that comprises the unique culinary landscape of the UK. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Food is Great, and I'm so excited to be joined by Jessica Bride. Jessica is a New Orleans native who worked in restaurants for nearly 15 years between Louisiana, Florida, New York City, and London. She attended the International Culinary Center in New York, is a certified sommelier, and is a diploma candidate at the UK's Wine and Spirits Education Trust. She has at times been a food writer and blogger, as well as an Instagrammer in London, and also most recently, 
the arts editor for At London, a social media account with 2.5 million followers on Instagram. She lives in Notting Hill in London with her husband and three children. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jessica. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too. It's great to catch up. Um, and what better way to talk about food and drink of UK and hear about all of your tips and tricks and wisdom. Um, so let's just jump right in. I'd love right. to hear about your background. Obviously, London is a long way from New Orleans. So how did you and your family end up in the UK? It is. Um, well, we I lived in New York for about six years before moving to London. And I think that's kind of par for the course. Whenever you meet Americans here, um, their journey usually comes through New York. But um, my husband is English and I met him in London. And we both like being the expat. And so we sort of arm wrestle every couple of years about whether we're going to make New Orleans home or London home. We even did a stint in New York together um, for a year just so he could try that out. Um, but we, uh, yeah, it, it's sort of, it's, it's far away from New Orleans, but it's surprisingly similar and kind of the old culture and yeah. architecture. And, and so I feel very much at home here. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I've actually noticed that in your Instagram feed and the beautiful photos that you over the years have kind of transitioned, you know, from food and food is still kind of, um, you know, weaves in and out of yeah. what you post. But I see so much in terms of travel and daily life and kind of snippets of um, facades of buildings and and oftentimes I'm thinking, is that New Orleans or is that London? You know, like um, there's definitely something. It seems like there's a similarity there. Um, do you want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, it's really funny you'd say that. So when I when we first moved to London, I was really focusing on food and it was recipes and cooking and getting used to the local ingredients and staging foods and flat lays. And I loved it. But then gradually I started getting more and more comfortable with exploring the city and just really falling in love with the architecture. And, you know, there's a lot of incredible modern building that's happening. There's brutalist architecture from sort of uh, post-World War II that has this fascinating history. But then also there's a tremendous amount of um, Edwardian and Victorian architecture mm -hmm. that just really stops you in your tracks. And you're just kind of walking around doing normal errands, running to the bank, going to the grocery store. And you look up and there's just sort of this amazing, you know, one of my favorite views is um, there's a pub called the Church Alarms. And it's just a five minute walk from our house. And it's a pretty well-known pub and everyone takes pictures of it because it loads of greenery around the outside. And every time I walk by it, I just feel like I've got to take a picture of it. And I'm, mm -hmm. I've probably featured it more than anything else in my Instagram feed. But it, you know, if it's sunny, you know, there are flowers blooming. And in mm -hmm. Christmas, they must put 50 Christmas trees around it. And when it's rainy, it still just feels like the right place you want to go. Um, so I, I just feel like in every neighborhood and everywhere, you sort of aren't even expecting it. And you look up and there's just this amazing picturesque building. And so I really transitioned gradually away from just food and then started going interweaving London exteriors and um, and interiors as well, in addition to the food. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that transition because, um, you know, food is so central to our daily lives, um, you know, especially um, as a mom, you know, we both have three kids and I sh I'm sure you're um, cooking and cleaning and, you know, baking with the kids and, you know, um, taking care of them, you know, nonstop around the clock. Um, yeah. <laughs> food, food is what obviously, you know, at, at least in my house, you know, we come together around food um, Absolutely. all the time. But obviously there are other things that we all love. Um, and I know travel actually is something that, you know, really defined you and your family. And, you know, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how has um, your ability to travel or I mean, are you doing small uh, day trips now? Or I mean, I know you guys were always on planes traveling all over the world. What is life looking like without travel in the way that it used to be? That's yeah. That that's actually really interesting. Um, we started at one point. We started tracking the flights that my youngest had taken. I can't remember why, but um, they were just they were adding up and adding up. And, and so at one point, I can't really remember why, but we started jotting down which flights, how many flights my youngest had taken, and it it the numbers you know, just kept going up and up and up. And when by the time she was four, she had taken seventy flights. By the time way before her sixth birthday, she had hit her hundredth flight. And, <laughs> okay. it, you know, and, and to us, honestly, with, we live in the middle of Notting Hill. It's a hugely transient area, extremely international. And our children all go to a school that's not an international school per se. It's just a British private school, but it's unbelievably international. Um, I, I, with all three children combined, there might be two or three families in their three classes that are of English mothers and fathers. Wow. It's amazing. Um, and so it's just, and the holidays are set out a bit differently. So as soon as there's a break, people leave to go see their families, to go see their, where they have their family homes, to, to travel, to take advantage of our location. So central to Europe. So we just got used to it. Um, and that has been one of the most amazing things since lockdown is that we've been, there have been <laughs> no flights. Um, we spent four months in the U.S. Um, because actually the, the family matter, my dad died very sadly in April. But it it was really amazing because it made the five of us just got on a plane, headed to southern Louisiana and stayed there without it blinking for four months. And it was such an amazing time to nurture our family, um, to remind ourselves of the heritage we have of Southern Louisiana. The food was amazing. We didn't eat out at any restaurants either. So we were cooking. cooking right. Yeah. And, and you're really, you know, living there, you're really cooking just Cajun food every night. It was red beans and rice, jambalaya, um, we got there during crawfish seasons. So there was a ton of boiled crawfish yeah. when friends would, would visit to kind of, you know, come sit with us after my dad died, they would bring bags of boiled crawfish and ice cold a beat of beer. And so we just pour them out, um, at a big picnic table outside and everyone would sort of eat together and chat. And my friends in the UK would often call in for FaceTime chats for the same thing to check on me, mm -hmm. to check on 
the kids and they just, they were sort of blown away that part of the grieving process was actually having friends around and boiled crawfish and um, grilling sausages. And it was, it was really, it was nurturing to be there and surrounded by friends and family, but literally nurturing by having the food of Southern Louisiana to kind of um, take care of us during that time. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Um, I also lost my dad suddenly, so I I know how hard that is. Um, But it must have been, you know, I guess, nice for your kids to get, you know, four months in Louisiana um, and to connect with your past and your family in that way must have been maybe a little bit of a silver lining, I guess, of their experience there and seeing how you grew up in the the community and the friends and family. Um, Absolutely. It was, it really was a gift. And if, you know, this is such a bizarre time that we're all living through. And I think you can only kind of look for the silver lining. Yeah. And one is definitely that we all felt like the world stopped and we felt like that was fitting for the loss of my dad. So it was, it was, it really was a gift for us to, you know, where he lived, it was really remote um, in Southern Louisiana. And so it was, it was very much like we were all on a retreat together for about four months, but it was wonderful. And then we, and then we jumped on a plane and we landed back in London and it's like, great. Okay. Now we're back in the other part of our lives. Well, I'm glad you were able to celebrate him and and his life in that way. Um, And so I guess, you know, you're back in London and what, you know, tell us about life in the UK right now. Um, you know, how how have things changed? Um, what kind of maybe there's been some interesting innovations or pivots that businesses have made? You know, I know that our audience would love to hear what life is like right now over there. Um, well, let's see. So London... London restaurants, London food is fascinating. There are obviously a couple of really high-end, really well-known chefs. Um, you know, Otto Lange, obviously, you yep. know, international spotlight. Jamie Oliver, um, but um, there's also there's someone named Mary Berry, who's sort of an like the Ina Garten, but of mostly of baking, but kind of also does those just foolproof recipes. Then there are a couple of really incredible women um, at the helm of of places. Claire Smith has opened a gorgeous restaurant called Core in Notting Hill, a Uh Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, And it's really interesting to be back here because a lot of these people are are really pushing forward. Um, Otto Lange is still doing great. He's put out another cookbook. His takeaway restaurants are doing great. I don't know if... um, how well it's known, but his, his sort of core dining concept here is that he does take away sort of like deli stuff, right? So you line up, you go in and you just get these amazing salads and prepared foods and baked items. And, um, and so it's this really neat concept because he can put them in these tiny little storefronts, although there some are larger than others, but those have stayed, um, stayed busy and people are just thrilled to be able to go in and still get an Ottolenghi salad right. in the middle of, of this. Um, and then Claire Smith, again from CORE, her restaurant ha- has just been packed. It, and she's very much, it's she's a Michelin starred chef. I 
I can't remember who she came up through. Um, if it was Gordon Ramsay, it might've been Gordon Ramsay, but her restaurant, you could walk in not knowing anything about her or it. And you would have a sense that there was a woman at the helm <laughs> because though it's, it's sort of Scandinavian in style and very modern, but it just has this um, delicate, so it has a slightly softer touch to it. And as such, the, the tables were already quite spread out um, and it was quite, it was quite airy and spacious inside. And so really, I don't think she's missed a beat since being able to reopen again. Um, so that's, that's sort of the higher end side. And then the other side of is pub life is, is a real, uh, is genuinely of cultural importance in England and yep. in London, especially, it's not just, we just don't have the equivalent in the U S it's not just going out for a drink, but it's pub life is on Sunday, you grab your children and your friend grabs their children and you all meet at a pub together at 2 PM and kids play board games and you have a soft drink and a glass of wine and a half of a pint and your dog is with you. And <laughs> after about an hour, then you decide to go ahead and, and order something to eat and everybody eats and the kids eat and then they go run around outside with the dog and they play more board games and you read the newspaper and you might spend four hours there, five hours there. And one of the big changes with COVID regulations is that that, that has gone away. Yeah. So it does, especially in London where you look for these to be your common experiences and to just sort of remind you that not everything is go, go, go all the time. And you can just sit somewhere and have a drink and chat and hang out. It, it, it's, it has really changed the interaction among families to not have that, not have the pub at the core of your sort of social experience. Yeah, that must be tough. It um, must be tough. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that a lot of the restaurants have, um, been able to sort of weather the storm and, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, kind of similar in terms of, you know, takeout, um, and, you know, kind of innovative takeout, um, and dinners that you can cook at home and chefs yeah. creating some great content, um, both in New York and in LA where I am currently. So, um, you know, we're hopeful that everyone is able to, you know, sort of ride it out and, you know, stay afloat um, and, and we'll, you know, be there on the well, other side. I'll tell you one of my favorite, very briefly, one of my favorite success stories out of this is um, there was a company called Smith and Brock and there were two young guys and they supplied um, produce and dairy to a lot of really high-end restaurants. And when we locked down in March, they basically went out of business overnight, right? Because yeah. they were even sort of a week before right. everybody shut down. And just as a last-ditch effort, they sent a message out to a couple of moms they knew and said, listen, we'll put together these fruit and vegetable boxes for you. Yeah. Um, just call and leave your order. And the way restaurants normally do it for anyone who doesn't um, know this is at the end, if you work in a restaurant at the end of the day, you figure out your inventory, you figure out what you need and you usually call your produce and meat supplier and you just leave a voicemail because it's usually 2 a.m. or something when you're doing it. And then they come in the office at about three or 4 a.m. They pull all their voicemails, 
create their deliveries and then do the deliveries. Mm-hmm. So Smith and Brock um, decided they were going to do the same thing. So they created two or three different collections of fruit and produce. And they sent a message out through these moms through WhatsApp and said, just call this phone number, leave your order. If you're in these postcodes, we'll deliver to you um, next day or within yep. two days. Mm-hmm. It exploded. Moms sent it to moms who sent it to other WhatsApp groups, to other WhatsApp. And all of the schools here, the classes all have WhatsApp. So mm-hmm. you just you get information out. It, like It spreads like wildfire. So within two or three days, their phone lines were down. They couldn't handle it. They they were just inundated with orders. And within a week, they had a couple of young girls on their staff create pictures, create website, uh, make it so that you could order using Apple Pay on your phone. And they just, they took off and they just hit it out of the park and they started delivering. They created all these new delivery boxes. They've now since done partnerships with Smith and Walensky. So you can get a Smith and Walensky mm-hmm. steak box, yeah. Yeah. a fish box delivery. So you can have um, fish and recipes delivered to you. They do a uh, dairy and charcuterie delivery, which I've ordered twice as sort of hostess thank you gifts after having dinner at someone's house. Instead of sending flowers, you send a 45 pound bread, meat and cheese delivery. Oh, I love and that. They- Oh, it's so much better than flowers. Totally. And then they've absolutely hit it out of the park. And it's just been such an amazing thing to see someone just say, okay, this is the issue. This is how we're going to, this is what we're going to do and just absolutely succeed. That's great to hear. Um, In New York, actually, you may remember Baldor. Um, They deliver to a lot of restaurants um, and chefs order from them. And they've done a great job basically doing the exact same thing. And they've teamed up with chefs and, you know, they're doing home delivery. And we were in New York all summer um, at our house there. And, you know, it was just wonderful to be able to order, um, you know, from them and to be able to get actually the the quantities too um, were yes. know, larger quantities. And I mean, you know, I have five people in my family and we all eat quite a bit of food. And so, oh. um, you know, I was glad that oh, I had yeah. 45 pounds. You have this yeah. enormous container of every fruit and vegetable you could possibly need for a week. And then there's also, I mean, I of course love the challenge. Like, okay, what are we going to make? Here? Yeah. Exactly. And, and people have been doing that for a while. There are a couple of other companies, you know, the, the CSA yep. um, boxes, but there was just something about this that just, just blew us away. Yeah. That's awesome to hear stories like that. Um, so I'm kind of curious, um, in terms of your style, you mentioned, you know, the way that you were cooking when you were back at home in Louisiana. Um, this past spring. And, you know, since you've moved to the UK, have you changed or evolved your um, cooking at all? Are there any, you know, um, UK, you know, dishes that you now are, you know, are in rotation or ingredients or condiments that you're using that you you maybe wouldn't have? And of course, your husband's English. So, um, you yeah. know, I'm assuming he has some childhood favorites that he likes you to make for him. Um, but I'm just curious, what do you, what what is- <laughs> um, you know, and how has London and the UK inspired your cooking? Well, it's a funny question tonight because actually I made, um, basically Louisiana fried shrimp for dinner tonight. So it's a- <laughs> 
<laughs> so that was a bit of a gift for my youngest. But um, yeah, it's it's funny. I really do go back and forth. And now when I am here, I do still try to make my daughters um, both love gumbo. I do make mm-hmm. red beans and rice. So, and you can actually get amazing crawfish here. So you can, they call them crayfish, but mm-hmm. I'll never give in to that. <laughs> um, so, so, and I made um, a stuffed merletaw the other day, which I guess is called coyote here. Yep. So it is kind of funny, but um, so, so that's a lot of fun for the kids. And also the kids when I, you know, I put on um, Cajun music and while I'm cooking and everyone sort of loves it. But for, I really do change the way I cook when I'm here. Um, one of the biggest things that stands out is that it's much easier and um, much more common here to pay attention to where your meat and produce is coming from. Yeah. So at the grocery store in the U.S., you go up and there's a huge uh, uh, display of apples, right? And it, it should say at the top of the display, you know, handwritten on the chalkboard where the apples are from, but you kind of aren't really paying attention. You go up and and you decide whether you're going to have organic or not organic. And, and, you know, you make your decisions based on price, style, color, whatever it is. But here, they also are often, you know, it'll say like crisp or sweet or tart. It's almost like they're talking more about the flavor here than they would, you know, an orchard in upstate New York or something like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And here, one bad thing is that produce will be um, individually wrapped already. Unless you're at um, a couple of the Whole Foods grocery stores, most of the grocery stores, if you go to buy apples, there are going to be four apples prepackaged. Right. Right. So it's a it's a bummer because of the packaging. But when you grab the packaging, it says on it very clearly from Essex, from Peru, from Kenya, wherever it's from. And there's a genuine um, desire to to just grab food that's local. Um, And so you do find yourself eating. We find ourselves eating much more seasonally here because we pay much more attention to where the the produce, vegetables, meat, whatever it is, where it's coming from. Um, There's also the grocery stores all produce really high-end magazines oh which double as marketing material for their seasonal offerings okay so and and at any whether it's um morrison's or aldi or waitrose or whole foods really any of the grocery stores offer the same thing and so you're really picking it up and you're really thinking okay um right now everybody's wild about apples it's like it's it's british apple season so people are making apple crumbles and apple turnovers and apple um I don't know, anything you can think, not apple pies, oddly, but any (laughs) other way of using apples. So there's just, there's a huge focus on local ingredients. The other thing is people love pies here, but not pies like we have in the U.S. Pies here are often rectangular for a start, Mm -hmm. but they're also often topped with um, mashed potatoes instead of, so you have shepherd's pie, cottage pie, fish pie, which I just think is amazing. Um, and, and it's a much more, and my husband and I were discussing this the other day and trying to figure out exactly how it came about. And I think it's because historically people had these aga ovens that are basically just ovens that are on all the time and you can't really regulate the temperature. And so you can't have something set at the exact right temperature to make a 
puff pastry or a, a short crust pie come out exactly as you want it. But you can pretty much cook all of the ingredients, put it into a casserole dish, put it in the oven. And I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, 60 minutes later, it comes out and it's a pie ready to go. Um, so that's also another thing that's different here. We, I make a lot more pies. I make things that are that are prepped during the day. And then in the evening when everyone's ready, I make a green salad and then pull out, pull the pie out. Whereas in New Orleans or in, when we were in New York, it was much more of a sort of, um, a la minute, you know, like I'll saute some fish and blanch some vegetables and add some kind of vinaigrette. But here it, it, it sort of feels much more like comfort, cool weather cooking a lot of times. I love that. And it's actually much easier for you sort of at that hour when everyone's hungry and, um, you know, you're just trying to quickly, you know, get dinner on the table. You already have, for the most part, it ready to go and you just assemble oh, yeah, the yeah, salad. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, you're exactly right. So much easier. Awesome. We're just going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. This episode of the Feed Feed podcast is brought to you with Food is Great. Feed Feed and Food is Great invite you to explore the UK's unique and exceptional food and beverage culture, which has captured the imagination of the world. The UK produces a diverse range of premium products, from whiskies distilled in the beautiful highlands of Scotland to sparkling wines made from grapes grown in the sunny vineyards of the south of England. Ready to explore more? The Feed Feed has created some delicious recipes using UK products. Find out how to make fluffy Stilton popovers, smoked salmon tartine, rich stout cake, and cocktails like Gin Gimlet, London Fog, and Ginger Whiskey Jam by visiting ff.recipes foodisgreat. That's ff.recipes foodisgreat. Oh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about cookbook authors. Um, are there any British cookbook authors that you love that you, you know, tend to go back to their recipes time and again um, and kind of have integrated their, their recipes into your repertoire? Um, there are a lot of great UK cookbook authors, and I think probably... Um, Otto Lange is obviously hugely popular and is amazing. Um, and I think he's brought a new type of cooking to the UK, especially to London. Yeah. Um, Jamie Oliver also, you know, he started at River Cafe with his sort of um, quasi-Italian cooking and then got into really Italian cooking and then published his Italian cookbooks and then got into vegetarian cooking. And he's he's really incredible. Um but also Nigel Slater is okay. a sort of, uh, yeah, I think you know him if you're really into food. But other than that, I think he's sort of unsung in international circles. But he is really a king of seasonal cooking. And again, going back to one of the themes that's really big here is is really cooking food in season. And Nigel Slater is one of the guys you, you pick up his cookbooks, flip through, there are very rarely pictures. And it's really just getting a feel for the season 
and what you what you want to cook and what you want to keep in mind over the next three months. And I think he's probably the most inspirational in terms of practical inspiration. Yeah, I love him. Um, that's actually how I cook at home. I'm I'm all about sort of just leaning into what's local and available and seasonal. And um, when we're in New York, we have a CSA box that we get and one farm that we go to where we actually harvest all of our own fruits and vegetables. Oh, that's amazing. It's, it's amazing. I always tell this story. Um, when I was pregnant with my youngest, um, it was the middle of the summer and I was, you know, seven and a half months pregnant and I was, um, digging potatoes. I was actually on a pitchfork and I'm like, you know, getting (laughs) potatoes out of the ground. And, um, it's, it's right next to like the far edge of the farm is next to a golf course. And these golfers just like kind of, I guess I stopped them in their tracks because I must've been turned <laughs> sideways and they saw my, my pregnant belly. Um, but you know, they looked at me just kind of like almost threw their hands up in the air. Like, what is this woman doing? <laughs> and, you know, and for me, it was like the most fun I had had, you know, all week, you know, I had a, a babysitter so I could go to the farm and, you know, dig up potatoes and the right, you know, right. New York heat and humidity. But I, I do right. love the, um, to lean into kind of what's available and local and seasonal. And um... I really do. And I think someone like Nigel is great as well. If you're not familiar with the area, I mean, I'm much more familiar now, but when I first got here, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, and it was amazing to be able to pick up his cookbook and a quarter of it would be dedicated obviously to each season and to think, okay, so this is what I need to pay attention to. This yep. is what's going to be available. This is what I'm looking to do. These are the the types of meals. And then you just sort of create a framework that you can then work from for that season. Love it. So, um, you know, obviously we're in a time right now where, you know, restaurants are not the same as they were, but I'm, you know, just kind of back, um, you know, in time, pre-COVID. I'm just wondering, you know, are there restaurants in the UK that you would tell people, you know, are worth traveling for? What are some of the dishes that you've eaten out over the years um, in London and around UK that, um, you know, really were memorable and and you would recommend? Do you know, one of the most amazing restaurants, and I swear I would tell you to get on a plane tomorrow and and come, is um, the Fat Duck. And I know it's not an unsung hero, it, but it is just amazing. And I don't know, do you remember the movie The Others from years and years ago? So do you remember when everyone was talking about it prior to you seeing it? And they said, oh my goodness, it's the most amazing movie, but I can't quite tell you why. Yep. Right. And it was only when you saw it, that you're like, oh, uh, I get it now. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what the fat duck is like. It's amazing, but you can't really tell people why it's so amazing because then it kind of blows the magic of it. But it's amazing. And I think Heston Blumenthal is incredible. It's actually, the food is outstanding. He creates this extra sensory experience. The wines that he, that are paired with the foods, they're amazing, but none of them are wines that you want to rush out and buy because you recognize that they're special in that moment. Right. Um, and Paired it's just with the food that you're eating. I think that's such a, yeah. um, 
I, I've done that actually a couple of times where I've actually taken a photo of the wine that I've eaten mm-hmm. at a restaurant and I've ordered it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's like, was that, yeah, why doesn't it taste the same? And it's because yeah. it was paired with what I was enjoying and it was special in that moment. And, you know, sure, you could try to recreate that at home, but you probably never will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's... Uh, so the the fat duck is just it's such an experience um it's just amazing and claire or core mm-hmm. that's in notting hill the claire smith restaurant it's she's just she's really special it's really incredible um and you know one of the really interesting things here throughout england so leaving london a bit is there's been a trend over the past um i don't know five or ten years to create these gorgeous um, like country inns, but they're not country inns, they're manor homes. So country okay. manor homes with farm to table food that is just out of this world. So you show up at this fairly remote location with gorgeous design, not always incredibly expensive. You can usually find, you can, some of the, there's a big range. So you'll have some that are really high end, but there are many that are reasonably priced and it'll be in this gorgeous old country manor house with a chef at the helm and the food is just incredible and it's important because they're usually in a remote location so it's not like you can just um, jump in a taxi or drive to restaurants for dinner you kind of have to spend three meals a day here and maybe Mm -hmm. you'll be outside playing croquet or playing tennis or reading books in the lounge um, but there are a few, there's the pig, uh, one is called the pig hotels. Okay. So there's the pig near bath, um, the pig, I don't know, there are a couple of different pigs. <laughs> um, another is uh, called the time hotel, like the seasoning, the time or yeah. the herb the time. And they have a whole, um, this is a, an amazing old home that was, there was a woman, she was a doctor. I can't remember what her husband did. They had a couple of children. When the children went away to university, they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with this beautiful big house. And they decided they were going to open sort of a country hotel there. But they ended up doing, having a kitchen garden that would just, you know, anyone would be envious of and bringing in these amazing chefs. And so they had these curated cocktails and then they gradually added space and added surrounding buildings and added a spa and just got bigger and bigger. And now it's, it's just a Mecca for great food, um, wellness, relaxation. It's in this teeny tiny little town. There are beautiful little walks around and there are a half dozen to a dozen different people doing that. And that is something I think is probably unique to the UK. Yeah. It sounds like it. They sound magical. And just like a retreat from the everyday, but you know, probably yeah, it really too is. long to get there. Um, yeah, and that's, that's what we're doing in October. So the kids get two weeks off in October um, in the UK. They one or two weeks. Our children get two weeks off, and so we're going to a place called Bovey Castle. And again, it's an old castle that's been converted to a family-friendly and dog-friendly um, hotel, and it's got. Uh, they they have wellies out for the kids. There's croquet in the lawn. You can sign up for archery and fly fishing. And you do all of your meals on the grounds of the hotel. But there's 
a brasserie and then there's a, a tasting menu for grownups. And it's really, but they really embrace amazing food while you're there. Sounds really fun. Um, so I'm curious about, you brought up wine and cocktails a little bit. Um, talk to us about sort of the drink beer. You brought up, you know, obviously the pubs. Um, how do, you know, wine, beer and cocktails differ in your mind in the UK um, than in the US? Or is there not much difference at all? It's a good question. You know, I think when you mentioned the U.S., obviously we, um, you know, span so many different tastes and styles. And um, so it's hard to really, uh, you could find examples yeah. in any corner of the U.S. But a big thing in the U.K., people love Guinness. Mm -hmm. I think because the tip, it's just colder here. Um, and also it's seen as, as not so much... Um, it's really just sort of seen as an, a, a beverage, not so much as a beer. So you would go into a pub and have a half of a pint of Guinness. And that's something that you would see older women having, older men, younger men, younger women. And it's not seen as going in and having a Budweiser. Right. It's seen as sort of a more of a social drink. Um, well, Negronis, and it's something that you can sip. You know, you it, it's okay, actually, also, if it kind of comes to room temperature. I think the flavor of a Guinness is good cold, but also not so cold. In fact, yeah, yeah. I think that it's actually temp the temperature usually is a little warmer than an ice cold beer. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the really interesting things here is that there is something called a half pint. So if you go into a pub and you have a beer, you either have a pint or a half pint. And so you'll often see ladies will go in and have a half pint of Guinness um, or men will have a half pint of Guinness and everyone will make fun of them and call them ladies. <laughs> um, but um, it's it is it is. I think you're exactly right. You can sort of have a Guinness and sip on it. Um and it, it's much more of a social thing. Whereas if you went in somewhere and ordered a Bud Light, you'd kind of be expected to have a drink and then move on to the next thing. Right. But this, um, another popular drink here is Negronis. Yep. That's Aperol Spritz was, was all the rage a couple of years ago and it's been replaced by Negronis. And now I feel like everywhere you go, they're sort of doing their version of a Negroni. Um, and then other than that, obviously they're huge gin drinkers in the UK and there must be a thousand different types of gin um, and you can get a fantastic gin and tonic, but remember that ice isn't quite as big here as it is in the U S. Yeah. So if you, unless you go to a real specialty cocktail bar, if you order a gin and tonic, even if it's at an amazing restaurant, it's not likely to be packed with ice. Yep. And depending on where you're from in the U S I think most people in the U S expect it to be packed with ice. And I, I love ice and, and especially with cocktails. Um, and so you really, it's just a different thing here. So even though they have these amazing gins, a gin and tonic here, isn't going to quite be the same as what it would be even at a, a sort of neighborhood bar in the U.S. Um, a big thing here that's different is the wines that are available. Oddly, um, New Zealand wines are really popular here and are the go-to wines for group dinners because they're really reasonably priced mm -hmm. and they're um, they're sort of enjoyable across the spectrum. So you can have a really gorgeous Pinot Noir from New Zealand that might be 
um, 30, 35 pounds, which is a palatable amount for a group of six people. And you don't really know everybody and you're not sure what everyone's comfortable with in terms of pricing. You don't know what everyone's going to order. Yep. Um, so, so New Zealand Pinot Noirs are huge. Uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc as well. But really there's a, there's a big appreciation for New Zealand wines. South African wines were really big here. There's a whole separate um, issue of what's happening with South African wines. But one of the really interesting things is that the wines we have access to here are really different than the wines we have access to in the U.S. You don't get good American wines here. You can seek out and get a few. But whereas in the U.S., we, we just, especially where you are in California, there are just so many incredible American wines and they just, they don't show up here. Wow. But then one of the trends that we've noticed lately is there's a big trend towards magnums. So many more people are selling them. Restaurants are offering them. Restaurants are pushing them. Private sellers are dealing in them. And it's, it's sort of the thing is um, more French wineries are bottling them. Yep. And, and it's, it's, it seems to be a growing trend. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I've kind of noticed that too over the last couple of years. But I hadn't, funny. I hadn't really put my finger on it, but now I, I definitely... Um, I think it's moving and coming back the way we do, where we go away for sort of chunks of time and then come back. You know, we'll go to the U.S. Um, it, just over the summer for two months and we come back and you kind of see it stand in yeah. stark contrast. Yeah. Um, but it is it does seem to be a, a growing trend, especially here. Cool. Um, so we're going to move on to what we call the lightning round. So these are just like a few quick questions. Um, and I'm going to just start firing them off. So the first one is, is there a UK pay, UK based content creator who's really killing it on Instagram right now? Do you know who I absolutely love is Anna Barnett Cooks. I don't know if you've come across her, but she is gorgeous. She is an amazing cook. She's a contributor to the Evening Standard, which is a, a very popular newspaper here. Um, her Instagram is amazing. She just she highlighted or she showcased her the renovation of her flat, and she is super friendly and a lot of fun to go out to lunch with. Oh, so nice. she's. I just think she's amazing. She's just, she's a, a breath of fresh air and interesting content in what can sometimes be a, a stale environment. Great. Definitely check her out. Um, and what's exciting you right now in the food space? Obviously, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, people are changing and pivoting and adapting. Um, you talked to us about the company that pivoted from restaurant delivery to home delivery. What else is exciting you right now in the food space? There's a really interesting rest. You've probably heard of Noble Rot, right? Yep. The magazine. Mm -hmm. And they turned, they um, opened a restaurant in, um, I can't remember where they opened, but there was this really famous pub called the Gay Husser in Soho. And it was, it was the gathering place for, politicians and journalists and has this incredible history and it went out of business and it threatened to go out of business years ago. And then a consortium of uh, private investors and journalists offered to put the money together to buy it. And as a result, the owners decided not to put it out of business and to give it another shot. And then recently they just decided it was too much. They, they closed it down. Well, the guys behind Noble Rot decided to go in and buy it 
and have reopened it as a as a gastropub. Although gastropub has changed, it used to be much more indicative of a nice restaurant, and now it's just kind of a restaurant. But the most exciting thing is that the guys behind Noble Rot have reopened the Gay Husser, which is this crazy, amazing, steeped in history pub in Soho. And I can't wait to go check it out. Awesome. And so here's our last question of the day. And it's kind of a funny one. Um, So basically what we do is, I don't know if you've ever played the game. um, Well, in this case, we're calling it Shag, Mary Kill. Um, But I'm going to give you three different recipes. And I want to know which one you want to shag, which one you want to marry, and which one you want to kill. So here we go. The first one is Stilton Popovers. The second Uh, one... Okay. Is smoked salmon um, with a dill cream on like a tartine on a piece of toast. And okay. the last one is a chocolate stout cake. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. So Stilton popovers. I want to shag. Okay. <laughs> Love it. The smoked salmon and dill cream tartine. I want to marry because I want to wake up to that every day. And the chocolate stout cake, I'm going to have to kill because otherwise it's got to be out of my life or otherwise I'm going to weigh 500 pounds. (laughs) Love it. Well, thanks for playing along. Um, So thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me, Jessica. I really appreciate it. It's great to catch up and hear um, everything that's going on with you and your family. And I I wish you um, well in these kind of challenging and trying times, but it sounds like you guys are coming together as a family and, you know, as always, um, cooking together, eating together, traveling, you know, near and far. And um, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been great. It's been great talking to you. It's great catching up and really nice kind of thinking about all of these things because with the current environment, sometimes we end up so stuck in our own little bubbles that um that we forget about the friends and relationships and the far reaching effects of our lives. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And thanks to everyone for listening. To learn more about the food and discovery platform that is the feed feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure and follow us on Instagram at the feed feed and please follow Jessica Bride as well. If you have a food story to tell, or you want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur about a specific country or region and its cuisine, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.